you pray with me? Oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So fake news. It's become a popular term in the last couple of years, right? I don't think hardly a day goes by if you listen to the news that you don't hear the term fake news. Just because something is written down and a news outlet is covering it no longer leads to the assumption that it is true. In 2016, the Pew Research Center did a survey that revealed that most Americans suspect that made-up news is having an impact. So they surveyed 1,002 U.S. adults um, from the dates of December 1st to December 4th, 2016. And the chart up here is going to show you that 64% um, of Americans, based on how they extrapolate that data, right, say fabricated news stories cause a great deal of confusion about the basic facts of current issues and events. And 24% additionally say they cause some confusion. So this is shared. Um, this sense is shared across incomes, education levels, partisan affiliations, and most other demographic characteristics. So for me, this is some pretty interesting research um, around the concept of fake news. And we could debate this all day from a political or societal perspective. But the question for me begins to move into a spiritual realm. Because how do we, how do we decide what to believe about God? How do we come to certain religious or theological or doctrinal positions? You know, I think on this Sunday, where it's Confirmation Sunday, um, this is a, an especially critical question, right? We are welcoming two young people into membership in our congregation during our 1015 worship. They've completed the class. They've been challenged to think deeply about what they believe and why? These last two verses in our scripture reading this morning also invite me to these kinds of questions because they're basically a two-sentence purpose about the writing of the Gospel of John. So you may remember these words, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written down in this book. But these are written down so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Now, I have a confession to make. I love these sentences. I love these verses. I mean, it almost gives me chills to read them, that, that Jesus did many other signs that are not written down, but these are written down so that you may come to believe. Now, I don't know about you, but there are, there are times when I struggle with the stories that are written down in the Bible. Man, there are some hard stories in there. But I have to admit that I am so grateful that they were written down. I am so grateful that not only were these stories passed on verbally, that there came a point where enough people said, we have to write this down. It, I mean, it's too good to lose. We don't want to lose it. We have to write it down. So I am grateful to have, have become a recipient of these writings. And it is true that the words of sacred scripture have helped me come to believe. But, 
but it's not always enough. I mean, if it were enough to just read the words of Scripture and then believe, then I think the Gideons would have converted the whole world by now, right? Every street corner, how many Bibles have they passed out all over the world? Adam Hamilton, who's the pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, he recently, just before our general conference of 2019, published a blog post that was called, The Bible Says It, That Settles It. And in the blog, this is what he writes. The Bible does not work according to the, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it formula. Instead, we must read its words in the light of their historical context, try to understand why the authors wrote what they wrote, and read its less humane verses, like calls for vengeance, for example, in light of its loftier verses calls for love, mercy, and compassion. Most importantly, as Christians, we are to read all of the scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his ministry, death, and resurrection. He is the only unmitigated word of God. It is one of the most amazing gifts of Wesleyan theology that we are not biblical literalists. Let me just say that again. We are not biblical literalists. And we believe that it's okay to be honest, that we, be, we bring all of who we are to the table when we are figuring out what to believe. And so I want to ask a question this morning. I mean, this is a participation question. So how many of you have heard of the Wesleyan Quadrilateral? I am so proud of you and all of your former pastors and all of the great teachers who have taught classes in this congregation. That is an amazing percentage of us. I remember so distinctly when I first heard of this Wesleyan Quadrilateral. It was during a disciple Bible study with my college campus minister. We were gathered in the basement of the Wesley House, and as Paul so often would do, he was totally off track of whatever we were supposed to be talking about with Disciple 4, and he wrote on the whiteboard or the, the poster, post-it note, the paper post-it note that he had there, he wrote this acronym REST up there. And he was like, do you know what the letters stand for? Have you heard of the Wesleyan Quadrilateral? And none of us had. I mean, maybe one of us, but it was like nobody. You know, we're like, we have no idea, Paul. What is this, okay? So, so since you've heard of it, what is the R? Reason. The E? Experience. The S? Scripture. And the T? You guys are so amazing. Wow! So I love this because even though it kind of takes them maybe out of the typical order, like it makes it easy to remember because then you're like, oh, the quadrilateral, rest, I got it. And then, then the, they, they come to mind, right? So it's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. It's derived from John Wesley's journals and theological writings. And John Wesley is considered to be the founder of our Methodist movement, but a Albert Outler is really the one who tidied it up and packaged it as the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. But it's, it's, a, it's a concept that helps us understand how these four work in tandem when we are figuring out what it is we believe. So I want to I wanna look at kind of a, a snippet explanation of each part of the quadrilateral, and then I want to circle back to our scripture and look at how those things are at play in, in the story that we read this morning. 
So first, I want to look at scripture first, right? I've already said that we don't take scripture literally as Methodists, but we do take it seriously. And our official statement about scripture is that we believe it contains all things necessary for salvation. We do believe it's the inspired word of God, but that it was written down by, by human beings, right, who are not perfect, who are flawed. That it was also written in a particular culture and context, and therefore it's influenced by that culture and context. And when we are reading it in a different day and time, we have to take that into consideration and learn to research, to look at commentaries and what scholars say, and, and if we can, look at the writings in their original languages. And so we interpret those individual texts in light of their place in the Bible as a whole, which is part of where Adam Hamilton was taking us with that blog. We read them together under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? Which means that my interpretation of the scripture could be sharpened by your interpretation of the scripture, and that your take on the scripture could be sharpened by someone else's take on the scripture. And that's part of why we gather in Sunday school classes and Bible studies and small groups to read scripture together, because we believe that together we get more of it right, right? In our interpretation together. And reading the Bible may certainly help us come to know the truth of God's love in our lives, but it's also true that our journey may begin with something else. And that's why we have the quadrilateral. And so I want to talk about tradition next. You know, thinking about God and, and, and constructing our theology about who God is, it doesn't start over in every new age. And it's not this, like, time warp leap from the New Testament to now. Right? Since the beginning of the church, Christians have sought to under understand this God who loves us and is in relationship with us. And so tradition, at its most basic definition, is the passing on and the receiving of the gospel among people and regions and generations. And so I like to think about traditions in two ways. We have traditions with a big T, right? The, the, the tradition of the church. The Lord's Prayer or the creeds of the church, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, those are representative of our big T tradition. But we also have a, a tradition with a little t in, in the sense that the Christian tradition is incarnate all around the world, throughout many generations, many cultures, many times. This allows us to begin also looking at the global traditions of the church. And yet, it's also important here, once again, to acknowledge that, that the traditions of the church are formed by fallible human beings. And so we're always drawn back to the revelation of God's divine grace and love that ultimately guides us. And then we come to experience, right? That's part of what we're talking about with the kids. Experience is the part of the quadrilateral that I think is so distinctly Wesleyan, that it was added to other established sources and criteria of truth by John Wesley, because he thought it was an important practice to examine our experience, both our individual experience, but also our corporate experience for confirmation of the realities of God's grace. Now, I love this because I think it's honest. Because none of us can separate who we are from our experiences. 
we also can't separate really what we believe from our experiences, and we certainly can't take our, spirit, our experiences out of the way when we are reading scripture. Our experience is our filter, it's our lens, it's there whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. There's a, a writing by Anne Lamont that I think is so beautiful and it fits this. This is what she says. There's a lovely Hasidic story of a rabbi who always told his people that if they studied the Torah, it would put scripture on their hearts. One of them asked, why on our hearts and not in them? The rabbi answered, only God can put scripture inside. But reading sacred text can put it on your heart. And then when your heart breaks, the holy words will fall inside. I just want to say that last part again. Only God can put scripture inside, but reading sacred text can put it on your heart. And then when your heart breaks, the holy words will fall inside. Friends, I think it is experience that makes our hearts break. And that's when those holy words fall inside them. That it is our religious and spiritual experiences, our experiences of the world, of other people, of cities, of mountains, of lakes, of creatures, of, of all of what God has created that deeply influences what we believe, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. And then reason, the fourth part, Reason refers to logic, to critical thinking, to research, to science. And while we know, we know that God's revelation and our experience of God's grace surpasses the scope of human language or what is reasonable, we also believe that our disciplined theological work calls for a careful use of reason. We are thinking people. I mean, God has given us these amazing brains, the abilities to think critically, and we as Wesleyan people, as Methodists, we do not shy away from that. That it is okay, it is celebrated, it is encouraged to ask questions, to wonder, to discern, to think. And so it's okay to believe in the Big Bang theory of creation rather than a literal seven-day creationist. It's okay for a scientific discovery to shift a theological position that we previously held because there is new information available. We can think as Christian people and be proud of it, right? And here at CHUM, this in particular, I think, is one of our flagship marks of our identity that you don't have to check your brain at the door. That it's okay to say, well, I believe this, but I'm not so sure about that. And to know that that is part of the struggle of discerning what we believe, that that is part of being faithful people, being willing to doubt and ask questions. And so let us turn back to the scripture, that story. The scene is set, it's the evening on the first day of the week, and the disciples are gathered behind those locked doors. And it says they lock the doors because they're scared of the Jews, but they themselves are Jews. And so I think they must not be scared of all the Jews. No, I think they're scared of those who have just tortured and killed Jesus. 
And isn't that a typical human reaction to huddle together in perceived safety after something terrible happens to try to avoid going out in public? You know, I was reading some of the news about um, the Sri Lankan faith communities this past week. I mean, following this horrific attack on Easter Sunday that happened in the context of a faith space. Right? as well as community spaces. One of the articles I read said that this, this weekend, as in today, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, people of all faiths in Sri Lanka, not just Christians, are being encouraged to worship and to pray at home rather than in churches or mosques or synagogues. And the public spaces are empty, the streets, the shops, their markets, people are just not coming out. They're scared to be in those public spaces. It reminds me of the disciples huddling in that locked room. They're just scared. But I also wonder if perhaps the disciples are not only scared of those who killed Jesus. Maybe they're also scared that they might actually see Jesus if they go out. I want you to start thinking about that quadrilateral here. Because they have read the scriptures about the coming of the Messiah. They have heard Jesus preach and teach these scriptures, and they have heard him connect them to himself. And they know the traditions of their Jewish faith about who the Messiah would be. And yet, as the great drama is playing out before their eyes, they desert Jesus. They deny him. The Mel disciples don't even stay at the cross until he dies. They're nowhere to be found. And when the women come back from the empty tomb and tell the rest of them that he's risen, I have to wonder if a tiny part of them is whispering, oh no, it was true and I didn't stay. I didn't stay. I, I left. I abandoned Jesus. In John's gospel, it's Jesus himself who appears to Mary Magdalene, and this is the message she brings back to the rest of them. And so perhaps, just perhaps, part of their fear is that they would see Jesus himself and that he would be disappointed in them. There they are. Huddled together in the locked room, they're in tune with the sacred scriptures, they're in tune with their Jewish tradition, and yet reason and experience are proving to be obstacles for them. And those obstacles are manifesting themselves as fear. And yet fear and the locked doors don't stop Jesus. He appears in the room, he stands among them, peace be with you, he says. And before they can even ask, he shows them his hands and his sides. Does he sense that they needed a reason, that they needed a space for logical thinking, that, that they wanted proof, that they wanted to see, is it really him, to see the wounds? And he says again, peace be with you, gives them some instructions for going out into the world. He breathes the Holy Spirit onto them and tells them to forgive the sins of others, to set people free. 
and Jesus' appearance to him, they experience all of who he is yet again, peaceful and calm, energizing and sending out, freeing and forgiving. And when I think about this through the lens of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, I see all four playing this pivotal part, how scripture and tradition and experience and reason, they work together to bring these disciples to the place where they believe. And then they rejoice, and then they start to share this good news. And then there's Thomas. Poor Thomas. I mean, for whatever reason, he wasn't there. And he's been labeled doubting Thomas by church tradition. And I don't know that it's that he doubts just as much as he wasn't there. I mean, maybe we should start calling him absent Thomas. There's a Bible scholar that I read that says when Thomas finally shows up, he, sh he places a lot of conditions on whether or not he will believe. And so this scholar says, well, maybe his name should be Conditional Thomas. But as I reread this with a, with a Wesleyan quadrilateral lens, right, maybe we should call him Reasonable Thomas. I think that I might have done the same thing if I was him, and I'm pretty reasonable. I mean, isn't it reasonable to say, well, I do hear your story about Jesus, and I do also know the scriptures and our tradition, but I really just want to see that and touch that for myself before I can take that leap of faith. Thomas seems reasonable to me. And then think about this. A whole week passes. A whole week passes. The rest of the disciples have seen and touched and believed, and they're talking about it. And Thomas is over here being reasonable and waiting for a whole week. A week when he's wondering if he will get the chance to see and touch Jesus' wounds. A week when the rest of the disciples may start to question if they really saw what they think they saw and experienced. Was it really true? They could also be feeling a little bit defeated because they're not able to convince Thomas to believe what they're saying. Maybe they're wondering if they should even try going out and convincing anyone else. If they can't convince Thomas, this might not be a winning game. A whole week passes. And here they are again in the house, but this time Thomas is there. And the doors are shut, and Jesus appears, and again he leads with this peace be with you. And then he offers to Thomas the opportunity to see the wounds, to touch them. And those, those last two stepping stones that Thomas needs to believe, reason and experience, he gets there, and he says, my Lord and my God. He believes. And then it goes straight to Jesus did many other signs which were not written down. But these are written down so that you might believe in Jesus and that through believing you might have life in his name. Now friends, the Wesleyan quadrilateral is not a perfect analogy. It's not really a square, and all the sides aren't really even, and maybe you can't give equal weight to all of them. There are points where it breaks down. And there's a blogger and pastor, Jeremy Smith, who, who likes to use the analogy of the wind chime. And he talks about how, you know, you can get into what order the four come in. Do they all, um, go, go to my next slide for me, David. Do they all come 
Do they, are they all equal, right? Are they all for the wind chimes? Or is it that scripture is the bar? Go to the next one for me. Is it that scripture is the bar and the other three are the chimes? Or maybe it is that Jesus is the bar, which is kind of what Adam Hamilton was actually saying, and that the, the, the four are the, the wind chimes. Or maybe it's that the body of Christ is the bar and the four are the wind chimes, right? I mean, we could, we could go at this all day, and all of you might come to a different understanding about how that works. So another way to see this Wesleyan quadrilateral is to think of it as overlapping circles, with scripture kind of covering all of them and the other three intertwined. I have always loved the image of the Wesleyan quadrilateral being a dance, right? That, that life or the theological inquiry that you're trying to figure out is the music that is played and scripture enters the dance and reason and experience and tradition and soon they're all swaying and moving together and sometimes it's beautiful. I mean, it's choreographed, they're on the same beat, they're on the dancing to the same rhythm, it's magnificent. And other times the synchrony is just off and they're stepping all over each other's toes and it's a terrible disaster that leaves one pondering, what do we do next? It's not perfect, but it's a tool. It's a tool on the journey of Christian faith. It's a tool for our confirmation class as they make this important decision to join CHUM. And it's a tool for us as we live life, as we journey, and as we continually decide what we believe about God and others and ourselves and how that goes into how we act. And so thanks be to God that these stories were written down. And also thanks be to God that it's not the only thing we have. Amen.